This morning we're in Genesis chapter 8. If you could turn there. Last week we started uh, this process in Genesis 6. Figured we didn't need to cover the details of the actual flood. I'm not going to read all of the chapter. I'm going to skip over a little bit of it. But uh, prepare to hear the word of our God. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down, and on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Let's go down to verse 13. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you. The birds, the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the seed and the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I ask that you would be at work in us as we seek to grapple with your word this morning. Let us not assign it uh, to some age that's gone by. May your spirit be at work to reveal how it applies to us, that we may be convicted, encouraged, refreshed according to your purposes. Most importantly, may it point us to Jesus and his work for us. And we ask this in the name of our great high priest, who lives forever to pray for all those for whom he died. Amen. Last week, we had talked about the reality of God's wrath and how that can be, at times, an obstacle to people in coming to faith because they can view God as somehow capricious, God angry all the time, 
Not sure when the thunderbolt's going to come out of the sky, that sort of thing. And what we saw as we looked through uh, Genesis 6 was that, in fact, God had delayed that process. For 1,500 years, he had been pleading with people to turn from their wickedness. God's wrath came in response to the fact that humanity had filled the earth with evil. So this is not the result of one or two isolated acts, but in fact, they had filled the whole earth at that time with evil. And finally, God said, this is it. But still he gave them a hundred plus years to turn back to him, to turn away. Well, there's another aspect to this that I think comes together today for some people as an obstacle to faith. And that is the idea that if there really is a God, then why doesn't he fix this mess? Because it's pretty easy for us to see the mess that's going on around us. If we think about the last hundred years, wow, we look at two world wars. We look at the Holocaust and how many people were destroyed in the Holocaust. We think about what Stalin did in Russia and the millions of people that he killed. We think of what happened in communist China and the innumerable millions of people that were slain there as well. We think of plagues that have hit. We think of all these things and and we see sin rising up and rebellion rising up and filling the earth yet again. And, And so some people are like, if there really is a God, why is he putting up with this? And so they're almost the exact opposite of the other people. They want justice and they want it now. And they figure that because it hasn't happened, there really can't be a God. So that's sort of how we're looking a little bit at this passage. The big idea this morning is that God patiently preserves creation for his purposes of redemption. So I was tempted to kind of lump some of these things together that really, I see a kind of a, a response that works through this passage. I see God working, then I see Noah responding, and then I see God responding to how Noah responds, if that makes sense. And so there's almost a back and forth that takes place throughout this text. And I want to preserve that for us this morning. So if I sound a little redundant towards the end, that's why. Okay. The first part of this is to, is really bouncing back to us. Remember God's plan to restore creation. Okay. We're, he is restoring creation there, but it points to the future when he will restore it again. And this passage starts off with this just basic thing. But God remembered Noah. We talked a little bit about that last week. And what this means is that God is about to act. It's not that God was working and forgot like I can sometimes forget in my office. Uh, this week, my wife called me and said, Honey, there's sausage in the freezer at the church. Can you bring it? Bring it home for me. And so I was halfway home when it went, The sausage! <laughs> That's not what's going on. God's not suddenly, oh yeah, Noah, I forgot about that guy. Hope he's doing okay in the boat (laughs) with all the animals and everything that animals produce and all the chaos that is taking place in there. And so what's happening is that God is, now is when God is going to keep the promise he made to Noah. That's what this signifies. But Noah, like us, may have begun to wonder. He's sitting in this boat and it's not so pleasant probably at this point in time. Because remember, this boat has been sealed to keep all of the water out, which means it probably keeps a lot of stuff in that he doesn't necessarily want in. 
So this is a very uncomfortable thing for Noah. And he may have begun to wonder, okay, uh, enough rain. I think everyone's gone now. Can we please get this over with? I'm surprised he was as patient as he was. It's amazing to me. But God begins to keep the rest of his promise. What's interesting here is that Moses repeatedly alludes to Genesis chapter 1. There are all of these little phrases that we, that we read in chapter 1 that are now repeated. We, we see that the wind, or spirit, same word in Hebrew, wind, spirit, breath. And in, in chapter 1, in, in verse 2, we saw that the spirit was hovering upon the waters. And here we have the wind, or the spirit, coming and blowing upon the waters to bring them down. We see again this the emergence of dry land, which is similar to what we read in chapter 1, verse 9. Not only that, but when they, they get out, God says that they are to be fruitful and increase. And speaking of the creatures, not necessarily Noah yet. We're going to get to him next week in that regard. But it reminds us of this blessing in chapter 1, verse 22, on the birds and the animals and all the creeping things of the earth. Okay? God's restoration, according to Moses, is intentionally reflecting its creation. God is at work again, just as he was at work then. This is not the result of mere natural process. But God is at work to do these things. And it points us to the reality that there is continuity between the earth as it was originally created and the earth as it is now after the flood. There's continuity. It's basically, if you're a computer kind of guy, version 1.b or 1.2. I'm not sure which. Pick whatever one you want. But, you know, it's, it's, it's like, but it's not the same. There are a couple of significant little differences that take place in this, and we'll get to some of that. Not only is this creation 1.b, but, or version b, but, uh, Noah functions as Adam. Not Adam 2, but Adam 1.2. B. Because he is the new father of humanity. All of, of humanity will now trace themselves back through Noah. He's the father. And I'm reminded of, of one of the three funny movies that Billy Crystal was in. City Slickers. And his friend Daniel Stern, you know, the character is played by Daniel Stern. Uh, he's destroyed his life. He committed adultery, so he lost his wife. Unfortunately, he was married to the boss's daughter, so he also lost his job. Okay, And his friends, he sees this as, he's in complete despair and misery, and yet his friends are trying to cheer him up, and they say, it's a do-over, man. Everyone wants that in life, a chance to do it all over again. Hopefully better next time. This is God's, in a sense, do-over. Not that everything that happened thus far was wrong, from his perspective, but it is a do-over. He's kind of hit the reset button when it's like the computer locks up on me interminably. Thank you, Windows. Uh, he's hit the reset button in a sense. That's what's going on here. But it is different. The first hint that it is different is the fact that there is now rain. In Genesis 2, verse 5, we saw that it hadn't rained yet, and well, now that's all changed. And now the way in which water comes upon the earth is going to be very different. The atmosphere must have changed. And now there is rain. That's a fairly insignificant from our perspective, but nonetheless it's true. And then we also see that the ages begin to sharply decline. What's really amazing to me is when you look at 
uh, the genealogies that you find in the, the line of Seth is that Adam was still alive when Noah's father of Lamech was born. And so some people talk about the problem of oral tradition and the, the idea that, well, you know, we're passing this thing down from generation to generation. It's going to get messed up. Well, Noah heard it secondhand, probably from his dad, Lamech, who heard it probably, possibly firsthand from Adam. Okay? Big problem solved right there <laughs> in terms of the veracity of this account. And so, and even with Noah, his age does not decline all that much yet. And so Noah's going to live to almost the time of Abraham. If I remember rightly, he's going to live until Abraham's father, Terah, is alive. And so again, you have that very short, from, in terms of generations, time frame, in which the oral tradition is passed down and kept safe. But so, all right, all that to say that ages decline sharply after Noah. But we see also a difference between Noah and Adam in that Noah is a sinner from the get-go, whereas Adam wasn't. And so sin was not removed from the earth. We might think, well, why didn't God do that? And Scripture doesn't tell us, and so we'll stop right there. There are a lot of things in this text that the Scripture is not going to answer our little questions about, and we have to be content with that. But here's the thing. The God who renewed the earth then has promised that he will once again renew the heavens and the earth. We read about this, well, we see it in Revelation 21 and 22, but we also read about this in 2 Peter chapter 3. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. But here's the thing the home of righteousness. Something is going to be incredibly different. Where God did not remove sin from the first restoration, at the end, He's going to remove sin from the restoration. And so, even though we live in a world that is filled with rebellion and wickedness at this point, eventually He's going to renew it so that it's not there. So we have a greater hope hanging out there for us. There is a 2.0, not a 1C. Not a 1D. There's a 2.0 in the future. And so on the basis of his promise in 3.15, Genesis 3.15, the promise that the seed of the woman would stomp on the head and destroy the head of the seed of the serpent, God restores creation to be hospitable to humanity again. People can live on it. Let's go to Noah's response. And it really comes back to us again as sort of this idea that we are to worship the God of mercy in light of redemption. But let's note for a moment, Noah is in his boat. And yes, I have it on the baptismal waters here today. Um, this, this little boat has such a great history in our family. One day I'll share that with you. It was not like this boat. Um, it probably felt like this because you see all the creatures' heads poking out of the windows, but there were no windows, okay? Because it's got to be sealed shut. And Noah has been in this boat for almost a year with all the creatures, all the animals. Hardship. Now, what would you do if you were Noah and you saw that the waters had gone down? Wouldn't you be itching to get out? I mean, people talk about cabin fever in Alaska. 
You know, and growing up in the Northeast, you, you, you can get that sometimes. Um, not as bad as Alaska, but still, you know, you're, you're inside because it's so cold for so long. You know, it's those weeks where it gets doesn't get above zero. I don't know how many of you are familiar with those weeks, and you're just itching to get outside. That's Noah. He's itching to get outside, and yet what happens is the Scripture says he waited until God told him to get out. He did not presume to know when it was right for him to get out. He waited, and God told him, it's time to go. It's ready for you now. It wasn't ready yet, but now it is ready. Now was the time. And so faith is willing to wait on God to keep his promises, as opposed to demanding that God keep his promises now when I want them. There's a humility that comes with faith in this regard. So faith waits. And the first thing he does is, probably not the first thing you would have done. I guess I probably would have looked for a shower. I don't know about you. But he offers, he builds an altar. And he worships. He he offers burnt offerings. And so, again, this is one of those questions. How did Noah know the difference between unclean and clean animals? We're not really sure. But we see that that... People were worshiping from the time of Adam. You know, Cain and Abel, they were worshiping and offering things. And so that knowledge was passed down. And so he knew somehow what was clean and what was unclean. And he took some of the clean animals and he skinned them and he placed them upon the altar fire as a burnt offering, a total offering in response to God's faithful mercy to him. What did this do? What's the point of the offering. The same word here is the one that we find in Leviticus for the burnt offering. So the same, I'm imagining the same idea is at work. And the first part of the burnt offering is that it provided atonement. It covered over sin. It removed guilt on the part of the person who offers it. And which is why we see in Leviticus 1.4 where they place their hands upon the animal and say, this is my representative. I am the one who should die for my disobedience, but take this instead. Okay. Noah, in part, is acknowledging that he belonged in the floodwaters. that it was by God's sheer mercy and grace toward him that he wasn't also killed in the flood. And so this, these animals are in part, partially his atonement sacrifice. But it's not just about atonement. There's also gratitude involved. He's saying, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for sparing not just me, but my wife and my children. And their wives. Thank you for your abundant mercy. But not only that, but it reveals in Leviticus commitment. That from this day forward, there's certain things I'm going to do because of your mercy. Because of your love. Shown out, shown toward me. Not only that, but we also see, if we stop and think about this for a moment, how costly it was for him to do this. Has anyone been tilling the earth lately? There's probably not a whole lot of stuff to eat out there. There aren't many crops. Maybe there's some wild berries that grew. And what he's doing right now is he's sacrificing a food supply. Worship is costly. 
We see it not only here, but we see it consistently throughout Scripture. We tend to think that worship is not all that costly aside from the hour, hour and a half that I offer up on the Sunday morning. It's costly. But mostly it's costly because God is calling us to walk with Him instead of walking our own way. That's the primary way in which it's costly. So anyway, true worship, as we see in the story of Noah, responds to God's work of redemption. Yeah, we, people can worship him as creator, but that only gets you so far. And sometimes our problem is when our desire for worship is dimming is that our understanding and appreciation for redemption has decreased. And we need to go back and, and meditate upon what Christ has done for us that our hearts might be warmed again and filled with a passion to worship him who gave everything for us. We see also the continued sinfulness of humanity. The first part of, of God's response to this, um, which we'll get later, but, but God says this, every purpose of mankind's heart is wicked from childhood. This idea of, of depravity that exists Okay, the, the purpose that is revealed there, the thought or inclination, you know, we may, and we talked a little bit <clears throat> about this in Sunday school, even though we may do the right thing or the good thing, oftentimes our reasons for doing that are faulty, okay? <laughs> they're often very self-serving. They have no, they're not with respect to God and they're not respect to faith. And so what we find is that people are going to continue to struggle with sin. The sin problem has not been resolved. And so God gives the, the sacrificial law in order to deal with the sin of the people until such time as the ultimate final sacrifice comes. And so we as Christians do not gather as Noah did and slay animals. But we remember that Jesus, the one who is greater than Noah, is our sacrificial representative. That he is the one that we, so to speak, lay our hands on and say, may his Death be sufficient for the death I earned. That Jesus is the one who redeems sinners from sin's curse. And so we as Christians, we gather to worship in light of the one who did this for us. And so that that is why our worship is, is centered around what Christ has done that our hearts might be filled with joy and wonder at what God has done for us. And just like then, biblical worship means that God wants all of us. We see that in Romans 12, verse 2. In light of what? God's mercy. Okay? The foundation... Our worship is a response to God's mercy. Offer yourselves. Not part of you. Not offer something else. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. For this is our spiritual or good and pleasing worship. And so, God is concerned about more than whether you showed up you know, on Sunday morning. He wants all of you every day. That's how radical His desire is for us. He wants all of our hearts Every day. 
And so our commitment as living sacrifices is a response to this mercy. And so worship, including this commitment, is our proper response. Third thing this morning is that we are to wait patiently for God to fulfill His purposes and redemption. We see this in sort of the next act of this story here, that He offers this burnt offering, and then we hear that it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Sort of like those hamburgers I cooked on the grill last night. Man, those smell good. It means he accepts the sacrifice. He accepts Noah. And then he begins to respond. And what happens is that God does, I think, what is unexpected. He makes a promise that in some sense, I can understand the unbeliever coming and going, well, if there's really a God, why is this place so messed up? Because in, he says that in response to continuing sin, we think it goes to greater wrath. All you parents understand this. Doesn't it get more frustrating the, the, the greater number of times your, ch- your child does the same thing? You know, you're like ready to pull your hair out. How many times do we have to say this? Have you been there? We think that's how God would respond. Where he's just gonna, he's gonna start lining up bigger things. You thought the flood was bad, dude. <laughs> we got something else coming. Instead, he says, I'm not going to curse the ground any further. What he's done already in, in Genesis 3 and cursing the ground is sufficient for this point. To this point. He says he's no longer going to do this. He's no longer going to destroy the earth in this fashion. And he's pointing to the reality. This is the only flood. Worldwide flood. You know, yeah, the Mississippi will go over his banks and things like that. Uh, people will get their Miatas stuck in the washes when the rain comes through there, you know. That's not what it's saying. But it's saying there's not going to be another worldwide flood. God is not going to destroy humanity again in this particular way. He will wait. And what he does here is he makes this promise of preservation. And we're going to see it next week formulated in terms of a covenant. But initially here in in this chapter, we have this promise of preservation. As long as the earth endures, certain things are going to happen. Regularity. Heat and cold. Day and night. Seed, harvest. God is going to to maintain the regularity of creation to accomplish His purposes. Okay? Okay? He is providing consistency for humanity to prosper that he might accomplish his greater purpose. And now, here's the deal. We might think, because there is a day in which he will judge the world by fire, and we might think that's his purpose, that God's just waiting until it gets really, 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 really bad so he can really, really, really be mad. That's not his ultimate purpose. It's going to happen. He has decided it will happen. He's decided when it's going to happen. But that's not his ultimate purpose. His ultimate purpose is redemption. To save a people from the fire. To rescue rebellious people from what they deserve. That's his ultimate purpose. Redemption. He's, he's maintaining the stage for this great story to be played out. The great story of his love for his people. 
his people who are like an unfaithful bride. And yet, he will have her. Peter picks up on this a little bit in Second Peter, the second letter. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Okay, mindful that he wrote that 2,000 years ago. Aren't we tempted to think God is slow in keeping his promise? We're, t- we're tempted towards unbelief in reading that. He says, continues, as some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So he's talking about the elect, as we know from the beginning of the letter, okay, keeping it in context. All the elect aren't in. All the people that Christ died for have not yet come to faith. And he is patient until that day. He will not come a moment sooner or a moment later. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And so Peter is talking about how we deal with the fact that for all intents and purposes, God isn't around. It says, one, you believe and you trust in the promise and you patiently wait for him to keep his promise. Now, if he hadn't kept any promises before, it would be more difficult for us to wait, to think, you know. But he's proven himself to be a promise-keeping God. He's proven himself to be one who keeps his word, who's good for it. And so as a result of that, we have confidence that he will do that which he said he would do. And we can wait patiently. But also catch that. The character of our lives ought to change because of the promise that has been made. John says the same thing. And everyone who has this promise does what? Purifies himself. And so part of what we do while we wait is seeking him. That he might continually transform us. We're, you know, kind of going back to what we talked about with worship. We're continually offering ourselves to him. While we wait, that he changes us, he reshapes us, he remolds us, that we might be godly people while we wait. Anyone here good at waiting? Traffic? Anyone really okay with traffic? Going through a couple cycles of the light? I'm horrible at traffic. Lines in the store, not so good. In fact, we, we have a joke. Amy picks the lines because I, I have this undeniable ability to choose the wrong line, <laughs> the longest line. Okay? We're not good at waiting. How much more do we need God's grace? Not just to remember, oh, he's patient but to seek Him at the throne of grace 
and say, help me to wait. Help me to trust you when my life is hard. Help me to trust you when my sins seem so many. Help me to wait. So God will not act in worldwide judgment until that purpose of His, that redemptive purpose of His is done. So, brothers and sisters, there is a God. There is a God who is at work in this mess that we call a world. Just not in the way we might think He is. And His purpose, it includes judgment. But His ultimate purpose is redemption. The purchase of a people to be His very own. To bring the wayward and rebellious back into relationship with himself. And so faith waits, just like Noah waited. Faith waits for him to do this. Next week we'll talk some more about this covenant that God makes and the ways in which uh, 1B is not the same as 1. There's going to be some other significant differences in creation at that point. So, why don't we pray? Father, we live in a world that is uh, dominated by regularity. A regularity that we often take for granted, that we often miss in, in the instances of irregularity. And so I ask that you would fill us with wonder, with gratitude for the ordinary. And that you would help us to trust you to accomplish your purposes of redemption, even as we see rebellion and evil increase. And help us to live in light of that promise of redemption, trusting Jesus and Jesus alone to deliver us from the wrath that is to come. And we ask this in the name of him who was, who is, and who is to come. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last the lamb who was a lion jesus amen